Year after year, one of the most consistent items on my do something list is to have fun with fashion. Exploring my personal style has added more joy to my everyday life and helped me feel more like myself on the regular. However, I have found that there are some brands I would love to explore more, but they are out of my typical price range. Or there's the it item that I would love to try out, but without the commitment of keeping it. Enter Armoire. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, you can build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new to you styles. I just did my quiz and have selected a few dresses for the summer from Bowdoin, one of my favorite brands that I can't typically afford. And I also got a double-breasted black blazer from a new-to-me designer, a classic item that I have been on the hunt for but too scared to commit to until I know it's the one. For you expecting mamas, for those who are working or those who are style-obsessed, who want to switch out your wardrobe with quality pieces without the designer prices, check out this woman-owned company that has your style and your sustainability in mind. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash progress. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash progress to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. You are listening to About Progress. This is episode 197, You Can Still Be You When Life Gets Tough, with Chris Clark. Welcome to About Progress. I am your host, Monica Packer, and I am here to guide you toward living the life you want. Each week, you'll hear interviews and teachings on how to balance self-development with self-acceptance. Listen in and join our community that knows life is about progress, not perfection. I know we're not supposed to technically have favorites with children, and I do consider these podcast episodes to be like children to me. I really could not choose between them. But I have to tell you the honest truth here. I do have a favorite, and this episode is it. It is with Christopher Clark, Chris, And let me tell you why this is my favorite interview to date. It's not about what a great job I did. It's not because I was an amazingly skilled interviewer who really nailed it. It's not because it got a ton of listens either. It's about Chris. Chris and I talked after he was diagnosed. I think it had been a year, maybe more that he had been diagnosed with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. And we talked right before the symptoms were getting especially, especially hard. Now he was already in a wheelchair. His life had already changed dramatically. His muscle ability had gone down dramatically. But what was beginning to slip away as we talked on this interview originally was his voice, his ability to speak. And shortly after we did this interview, he lost that ability. And as an actor and director, which you're going to hear about from him a little bit more about his story there, that's a huge part of who you are. 
That is why this episode matters so much to me. Being part of something where I can say I helped someone record their voice before it was gone for their friends and family. Now, luckily, Chris is is doing fairly well. You can find him on Instagram, and I've linked to that in the show notes. And you can still see how he is himself through the really hard, hard times. Now, this episode is all about how we have to take break sometimes because life forces them on us. When those times are really, really tough, how can you still be yourself? How can you still be you as you navigate something really hard and difficult that can change the fundamentals of who you are? We have all had those moments in our lives, and maybe we haven't had them to the degree that Chris has, but we can learn from him how to still be ourselves as we navigate really, really tough times in our lives. This whole month, I've been thrilled to share Encore episodes with you as part of my theme, Take a Break. And that's what I have been doing, taking a break from sharing new episodes. And what I do is I actually edit these old ones down to make sure that they are really fitting the theme for you. What you cut out here or what you what you miss in this interview is how I explain that I recorded this in two different um, intervals with Chris because he got tired. Um, so we talked for 20, 25 minutes and then we recorded again the next day. So that's why those two... Uh, have sound a little different and you'll hear the difference. One has some family in the background because it was during an important family time afternoon for him. And then we recorded in the morning. So those are the differences there. Okay. Well, my name is Christopher Chris Clark uh, and I live in Provo. Uh, I was, I'm actually pretty much a Provo born kid. I wasn't born here. We moved here when I was 10, but I went to BYU and live here now because I teach uh, theater at UVU. So I, uh, I'm 45. I've got five kids. Um, I, I'm pretty fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> He's making a joke. <laughs> I said that to I him before. A joke. <laughs> you are fascinating. Um, uh, <laughs> we have so much we can talk about today. I know that many of our listeners will know that you were diagnosed with ALS a little over a year ago. So we will be spending a lot of our time about that. But first, I wanted to talk about life before ALS because you have such an amazing resume. I told you that I found your resume online, which is kind of creepy, but it was there. (laughs) And you have the most amazing resume with your with your theater and your acting so when you decided to become a professional actor was that something that surprised your family no not at all i had done um enough of it uh that i think they were actually really supportive of it um which is a relief because i meet a lot of people whose parents are not supportive of it Mm -hmm. and uh i don't think it was was particularly surprised uh but i i didn't know i actually thought that i was going to be a lawyer i I knew that i wanted to have family and that it would be really hard to support kids as an actor and so i i i i kind of figured like in school i would go to law law school but Mm -hmm. um and in fact, I told my wife I was going to go to law school, and I think I lied her. I lied to her <laughs> a little bit because I never did. She thought she was marrying a lawyer. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, have you but acted a she lawyer before? An actor. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no. But I mean, Dang isn't it. that what lawyer? 
that's what they do, right? And I guess that's it's all true. performance anyway. It's kind of like, right. yeah, I mean, it's a performative job. Uh-huh. So um, I, I, I think I did acting and theater all through high school because it was fun. I wasn't really set on doing it as a career mm-hmm. um, until like, until like uh, I became miserable. I was working in retail. Mm-hmm. I uh, managed Barnes and Noble stores and um, was miserable. And one day I just talked to my wife and said, Hey, I, I need to do something I love. So we quit. We quit doing that job and moved to, moved to England for a, a graduate program. Oh, wow. And is, yeah. And is this so, the globe is, I mean, I memorized your well, okay. so. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was part of my graduate work. That's um, so I went to the University of Exeter, cool. Exeter, which is in England. And um, yeah, and, and as part of that, I worked at the globe, which was super cool. That's amazing. And was that when you kind of had to come to terms that this was what your calling was in life to, to pursue theater? Um, well, I think, I think it was before that because Mm -hmm. I think it had to be before that, that before I made that really difficult decision just to move, move out there. Um, so I think my wife and I were pretty, I mean, obviously there was a lot of like, thought and prayer mm-hmm. and and everything that went into it because it's a huge decision yes. but we we knew at that point that's the direction I was going and I've never regretted it I think that nominally I'm uh, I'm a director more, more than an actor mm-hmm. I don't act a ton I do a little bit but um, my degree is in directing mm-hmm. um, and I love that and I love being able to work on sometimes out of the not kind of out of the box I guess uh, types of uh, productions I like doing things that are weird Mm -hmm. or challenging or just artistically different Mm -hmm. I don't love doing the same plays over and over again in the same way it's boring to me Mm -hmm. Um, so my best experiences in theater have been, uh, I think when I've been able to um, create a vision, create a world that hasn't been created before. It's very fun for me. It's very exciting for me. You know, and you talked about how you are a family man as well. I mean, having five kids. uh, So as as you are balancing this, professional life that I'm sure is super demanding and takes up a lot of um, family hours too. How, how did yeah. your family inspire your work and how were you able to deal with the professional ups and downs with, with them on your mind? Well, I'm married to a saint. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm married to a person uh, who understands the value of arts, of the arts who not only understands them, but promotes them. So my wife has always been super um, encouraging and helpful. And that's been hard, you know, because uh, I will I will have oftentimes worked 
a full day at the university, and then I'd come home and have to go back to rehearsal an hour later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a, a, a special person to understand that, um, and that's that's Lisa, that's yeah. my wife. Um, and I, and and there is <laughs> there's a real sense of joy that I get from bringing my kids to see my my stuff and to see them entertained by it. Or, I mean, I, I think my kids have been able to live a really interesting life because yeah. their dad creates things with, you know, unicorns and cyclops. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just uh, people acting like pigs. You know what I mean? Like yeah. not everybody's dad does that. And my kids, mm. to them, it's, it's the most normal thing in the world. And so... Uh, obviously, uh, obviously, I love what I do, but my main goal has always been just to provide for my family. I'm just lucky, I guess, that I get to do it, you know, by doing something I love. Mm-hmm. Let Let's turn now to your personal life. I feel like Oprah right now, but let's turn to your personal oh, life, breathe. Chris. <laughs> so, so I want to hear about what symptoms you ha- were experiencing before you got diagnosed with ALS? Okay, so I would say that I had symptoms about eight months before I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. This was in the summer of, of uh, 2015, uh, and I I don't know, I, I was in Europe because uh, I did a study abroad program for UVU mm-hmm. for about 11 years. So I was in Europe, and I noticed... I was waking up at night with really bad cramps in my legs. And then when I came home, I just noticed that there was a a deadness in one of my legs. It's hard to describe. It's like my my leg was drunk, my right leg. Mm -hmm. It just wouldn't work as fast as my left leg would. And there was just something dragging in there. Uh, Over the course of that fall... It got progressively worse, um, and we began to suspect that it was my back because I had had back surgery back in 97 or 98, and we thought, okay, it's time for a tune-up, you know? Um, So around the first of the year in 2016, I started to see, well, I went in for a series of MRIs. And um, they were looking to see what was wrong with my back. And as they progressed, they started to realize that there was nothing wrong with my back. It's fine. And that's when I noticed things started moving quickly. Suddenly, I had different doctors calling me to come in. And um, they don't tell you, you know, they don't tell you what they're testing for. They just tell you that we want to see you. And um, so around the beginning of March of last year, I I went to see a neurologist in Salt Lake. And she did some tests on me and had me walk. And by this time, I was barely walking. Hmm. um, I mean, without a... Or just... It's not necessarily painful. Mm -hmm. It's just they don't work. Mm -hmm. I see. And so... So I... um, I'm trying to remember the the sequence. 
So anyway, the, the, she said to me, um, just so you know, I'm, I'm worried about Lou Gehrig's. It was the really? first time I'd ever even considered it. I, I, I knew vaguely what ALS was. I knew Stephen Hawking was. Mm-hmm. I knew about the ice bucket challenge. Yeah. Um, but I never, it never entered my mind that I could have it. Um, but she said I worried about it, which meant, hmm. um, which meant that, well, so my brother-in-law is a doctor. Mm-hmm. And he says, when a doctor says she's worried about something, it means you probably have it. Because they won't name it unless they're mm-hmm. pretty sure. Um, and so, okay, so then, so then I'm Googling on my phone yeah. uh, ALS as I'm leaving the doctor's office. And, of course, I see, you know, a lifespan of two to five years. I see all these terrible things oh my gosh, yeah. about it. And, yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. freaking out. Yeah. Um, and then it was about two weeks later that it was confirmed. I went in to a neurologist, well, here in Utah Valley, and he he basically confirmed it and then sent me up to the University of Utah mm-hmm. three days later, and they reconfirmed it as well. So there it was. So when, when you did receive that diagnosis, what was your initial reaction to, you know, it being confirmed? That's interesting um, because I think because this doctor had warned me of what it could be, mm-hmm. I sort of felt like it was coming. So when the exact moment came, I didn't, I didn't really fall apart. I, mm-hmm. It actually, in a way, felt good to finally have a diagnosis. When you're in limbo for so long, you just you want to know what the monster is that you're fighting yeah and and so finally to be able to put a name to it i was surprisingly um relieved so for people who who don't know i mean they've probably seen the ice bucket challenge they've heard of it yeah um but but how how do you just describe lou gehrig's disease to people who don't have enough um information on it sure so it's a motor neuron disease it attacks my muscles and it's different for different people. For some people it can start in their hands or other people can start in their mouths, in their throat. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate in a way mine started in my legs and has moved out. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> my legs are pretty much out of commission. I can't walk. I'm in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. My hands aren't super great, um, and it's affecting obviously the way I talk now. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it slows down. It weakens your muscles, um, and becomes very debilitating. Uh, if it continues on the the trajectory it's on, I I will lose my ability to speak at all. Mm. And, and, uh, and that's kind of (laughs) the road we're going down. We're trying to figure out how to stave that off for as long as, as possible. Is, is that almost the, 
the hardest thing to take, knowing that you won't be able to speak, or is there something else that you are especially yeah, dreading? That, that's the worst part, because mm-hmm. I feel like my personality is in my voice, and so when that's gone, I feel like I'm just really boring. <laughs> yeah. uh, or I think, you know, what's also weird about this whole thing is that they don't know what causes this disease. Mm. They don't know what it is. It's not genetic. Um, they're trying, and that's part of the reason why it has more. It has no treatment or no, no cure because they don't know what's causing it. So it's hard to pinpoint treat if you don't know where it's coming from. So it's a big. There's a shroud of mystery hanging over it, and um, and so that's. I think that's frustrating for us and for everyone mm-hmm. that has it. It's just trying to understand and comes to come to terms with why we even have it. So they, the treatment, um, you said they don't have ones that to, to treat the cause, but I, do they just spend their time treating the symptoms more? As much as they can, but there's really not much really? that they can do. No. And when I was, <laughs> when I was initially diagnosed, he told me to get fat, put on really? weight, which is a nice, a nice thing to hear. Is <laughs> it? said, eat whatever you want, as much of whatever you want. Um, yeah, because people who have a little weight on them tend to last longer. Oh, told wow. me to sleep more, so that's a nice thing. Always to sleep more mm-hmm. and and not to go to the gym because yeah. uh, because they don't want me to expend energy. My energy is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. So I have to be very careful how I use it. So, but, but that's kind of it. There's yeah. no real medication I can take. I take the things that kind of help, but there's no, man, I wish there was some kind of a, uh, yeah. a magic pill, mm-hmm. but we all wish that. Yeah. And it's just not yet. Back to when you first, uh, got diagnosed, you said it, it was this strange feeling of um, relief and finding out what it finally was. Yeah. But afterward, did you have some intense grieving to do or anger that that came up for you? And, and if so, how did you deal with that? Um, okay, so, well, I mean, you have to sort of know my personality. I'm not a very angry person, Mm -hmm. and so I never really had any of those moments where I was, um, you know, cursing God, and and I don't judge people who do because Mm -hmm. it it would be very easy to do. But I've always kind of like rolled through the punches, and so I I accepted pretty quickly that this was something I believe that I agreed to in a previous life. Um, So, but there was definitely a grieving period, a really difficult grieving period Mm -hmm. for me and for my wife Mm -hmm. and my kids as well. I mean, what you're grieving is a future that you probably won't won't have. And so it's hard. There's just question marks hanging everywhere. How, how long am I going to live? 
what will I be able to see for my kids? Mm-hmm. You know, it's all, it's stressful in a way. Yeah. And I think we went through a grieving period, and I'm sure we still are. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely a period where we were in shock, and it just didn't, it felt unreal. And now, you know, a year and a half later, I feel like I've come to terms with it. Not like I've given up, but I understand this is my life. This is how my life is now. And uh, and I kind of just have to accept that role, <clears throat> accept that role with it mm-hmm. um, and, and make it as positive of an experience as I can. So I uh, we've we've already kind of talked a little bit about the changes you've experienced the past year physically, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how the disease has unfolded for you the past year and what impact it's yeah. had on you. I was lucky, <laughs> if you could say lucky. Okay. Uh, that might started in my legs because it 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 did sort of buy me more more time. Mm-hmm. I'm at the point now, obviously I walk, I'm in a, uh, I have a motorized wheelchair. Um, I can put, uh, I can put weight on my legs, but I, I can't really stand without someone next to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my hands, I, I mean, I can't write, I can feed myself sort of, mm-hmm. But but lately I've just been having my wife feed me just for the sake of speed. Yeah. Um, I'll be like at a in front of a dinner plate for an hour if I try to feed myself. So um, so I'm kind of in a place where I'm without the use of my legs or my hands. Um, and and then most recently, I <clears throat> it's affected my my tongue. And my lungs, <coughs> excuse me, uh, which is why I sound the way I do now, um, because my tongue is slowing down, and I don't always have enough breath to finish sentences. So that's kind mm-hmm. of where I am physically. It's kind of a wreck. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, emotionally, I've come to a pretty good place. Um, and and part of that may have to do with my drugs, um, <laughs> okay. because I'm pretty well medicated. Yeah. Uh, but another part of it is is having uh, dealt with this for two years now. Mm-hmm. This just sort of feels like my life, and um, you know you kind of get on with it. You get on with life. That's kind of where I am right now. That wasn't an overnight thing. Of course I didn't, not. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, and you know, I'm still on this journey. It's, uh, it's not going to immediately get better. Mm-hmm. And there, I'm going to have some really hard times ahead. I know. Um, but I just have to take it sort of day by day, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of times people who are battling a lot of mental illness, you know, like depression, anxiety, a lot of people say, you know, choose happiness, choose happiness. But I actually yeah. do hear people who I talk to who have suffered with these things, they do say there is an element of choice there. And 
I've been wondering with you how that came into play, this ability to still try to choose um, this acceptance that you talked about gaining um, and the humor that you seem to turn to as well as your family. Yeah, yeah, I do think it's a choice. I think that's, I'm glad to hear that other people are saying that because um, I don't really think of myself as a Pollyanna or, mm-hmm. or someone who's like, sickeningly sweet. Uh, <laughs> I, I do I do think you have to choose <clears throat> happiness because um, it's your life. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's, you, you are in control of your own personal happiness. And I could lay in bed all day sick and angry, or I could uh, choose to laugh and and you know get out of my house mm-hmm. and and uh, make uh, a happy life mm-hmm. uh, I don't find that it's any more difficult than it was before my problems have just changed you know what I mean um, yeah. they weren't well I'll tell you something interesting a friend of mine who also has ALS uh, when he was uh, when he was diagnosed, the doctor said, you have, you know, you have ALS, Lou, Lou Gehrig's disease, and then pointedly told him, uh, please don't commit suicide. Oh. Which, yeah, right? Which uh, is fascinating. You know, it wasn't a joke. Yeah. And um, it, it, you could easily do that. And, I mean, uh, that means, like, actively committing suicide but it also means just resolving yourself to well this is a thing i have and i'm gonna die and then you quickly die Mm -hmm. i i think there's something to be said for staying busy Uh, you know i'm still working full time Mm -hmm. uh uh, i still direct yeah well, I just have to, you know, mm-hmm. because it keeps me, I feel alive. I feel productive. There's a huge, huge difference, I think, in making that choice. <clears throat> and what about your family? I imagine that each one is different. I mean, you do have five children. you know. I do, yeah. Yeah, so they probably all responded to this differently. But overall, how has the progress gone there with uh trying to you know move forward and accept this new new life um well you're exactly right each one of them seems to process this whole thing differently um you know i didn't know i didn't know how they would respond and um and they're doing great they really are in fact i i joked to my wife lisa I would say, um, I w- why aren't the kids more sad? <laughs> why, why aren't they upset? And oh, and, yeah. sh- and she just says, um, because we're teaching them how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And if anything, my kids have become super uh, helpful. The it's almost their way of dealing with it is by being active. They, you know, um, they help feed me. Uh, my oldest son dresses me every day they they all just kind of jump in with you know what do you need how how can we help and it really does feel like a team effort 
Uh, of course, they have moments, um, and a lot of times, I'm sure I don't I don't see them. Um, but I think a proactive life is the best way to deal with something like this in a, in a family. Mm-hmm. Well, I see that. I see that proactiveness and, you know, that humor you mentioned too. I mean, your Instagram <clears throat> feed is, is just hilarious. I, I laugh <laughs> every time you post something. I mean that even That's the list. Awesome. Oh, it's so great. And uh, even the list, like uh, Lisa had made for your oldest son about the to-do list of taking care of you yeah. that morning. And you said it takes a village, you know, I just love that here how you and your family yeah. are, are like you're saying proactive and, and, and turning to that humor as well. Well, yeah. And that's kind of how we've always been. Uh, you know, my wife is incredibly funny and, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, she's, uh, people know her from, uh, the chat books commercials yes. where she's on a show <laughs> called random acts. Mm-hmm. Or she was a once I was a beehive, and she's very funny. She's she a is. funny person, and so the two of us together, I think we deal with this with a good touch of of um, joking um, because it's ridiculous. This whole thing, it's crazy, mm-hmm. and I don't know if we know another way to deal with it. But I, I do think our kids pick up on that, mm-hmm. and um, and they joke as well. You know. Yeah. It's just the way our family operates. It's not every family, but it's it's us. You know, I was thinking, aside from being told you can sleep as much as you possibly can uh-huh. and eat as much as you possibly can, has anything yeah. else good come from this? Um, yeah, totally. In a strange way. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have seen... I I think I have a better lens to see the goodness of people. I've seen people respond to this uh, in the most incredible ways. People come forward to help and they'll say, how can I help? And, you know, initially people would say, we want to help. And we'd say, well, there's nothing to do. Don't worry about it. But now Elise and I both have said, I've just decided to say yes. So when someone says, can I help? We'll say, yes, what can you do? And it could be something as simple as, you know, somebody knows how to uh, fix sprinklers or, you know, someone might want to come in and help clean the kitchen once. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and people love it. People love to help in whatever way they can. And so that's been super good for me because I look back on my life before my diagnosis and I think, you know, was I one of these people? Was I willing to help? And I I don't know if I was. And so it's super good for me to see that and go, wow, there's some incredible people mm-hmm. in this world, like genuinely good people. So I'd say that's, that's some of the good that's come from it. That's great. Um, you know, Chris, I, I was wondering if someone – uh, you know, was diagnosed with the same disease, if there was something, some one key piece of advice that you would give to them at the start, um, what would you say? I, you know, I would just give them some advice that was given to me by my doctor uh, and, and has proved to be true, which is, um, he called it the 15-minute principle, 
which is you can have 15 minutes every day to cry and feel sorry for yourself, and then you need to get back into action. Mm. And I've lived by that. I thought that was so great. It's like there's nothing wrong with crying. There's nothing wrong with feeling awful Mm -hmm. about everything. There's nothing wrong with uh, being depressed about it. At some point, you know, you need to get back to life and live as much as you can, Mm -hmm. uh, as hard as that is. And there certainly have been really hard days, you know, in the past year and a half. Um, But you have to get up and and live, you know, getting back into bed and closing the curtains and shutting yourself off from the world will only hasten the end. Mm. And so... I love that. I love that idea. Me too. Uh, it's think, really cool. Well, so many people can can take that on, even if they don't have an illness. You know, like you, you they can take that sure. on if they have yeah. some really hard life things handed to yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. And there's nothing wrong with being sad, um, mm-hmm. but it it can't control your life. Well, I don't know if you feel like you've already answered this, but I'm still going to answer, uh, ask it anyway because I okay. do this as my huh. final question for each guest. And I oh, always, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you can take this wherever you want. Um, but I always ask, what have you learned about yourself the past few years? So it's kind of like, what have you learned about yourself throughout the, the past yeah. two years of dealing with this? Um, am I allowed to be spiritual? Oh, yeah. Of course. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because primarily I've learned that God loves me. Mm. Um, I've learned that um, the atonement is real. And that, uh, that you know, I grew up hearing that, uh, that Christ uh, took uh, the sins of the world on him, but he also took the pains of the world and never really... Um, paid much attention to what that meant, the pains of the world. But now I understand. It just means that these things that I'm suffering, um, he's he's taken that on. He's felt that. And he understands. So uh, spiritually, I feel incredibly blessed to have this experience, oddly enough, mm-hmm. um, because I've learned it's brought me so much closer um, to the other side. Mm-hmm. I've also learned that, um, like I mentioned, that people are incredibly genuine and um, thoughtful, and I need to allow them to do that mm-hmm. um, because uh, I'm I'm an independent person. I'm a I'm a um, assertive person, and and this this illness is really not my nature. And I've learned to let people <clears throat> help me and say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also learned the value of family, and it is especially my wife, who's my primary caregiver, mm-hmm. but also my my partner. And um, I've learned to value her more than anything. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of it. 
Well, that's pretty amazing, oh, I'd say, Chris. <laughs> well, Chris, this is absolutely going to go down as one of my very favorite interviews. I'm so grateful oh, thank that you, you took the time. Thank you very much. Yeah, not a problem. I'm happy to do it. I am so glad you listened to get the hug and kick in the pants you needed to grow. Let's take your learning to the next level. Print off this month's progress plan that is free by going to my website aboutprogress.com slash free. Also, join our free and private Facebook group called A Work in Progress via the link in my show notes, which you can also find on my website aboutprogress.com. And best of all, be heard on this show. Be featured on the last episode of each month that is called Dear Progressor, where our listeners really, really shine. To learn how to do this, go to aboutprogress.com slash be on the show. You do have something of great value to share with this community, and we all need to hear you. Thank you so much for being here. And remember, life is about progress, not perfection. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.